0: This is CNN Breaking News.
1: And this is a Fox News alert. Some are coming on the air with breaking news. Very sad news to tell the sports NBA world. The LA Times is reporting that retired Los Angeles Lakers basketball star Kobe Bryant has been killed in a helicopter crash. It happened this morning. Good evening. Welcome to ESPN Sports Center, SportsCenter. I'm Michael Lee's Breaking News. January 26th is the anniversary of Kobe Bryant's death in the days weeks and months that have followed here on rejecting the screen adam stanko and i have spoken to so many connected to kobe this is part two of our two-part kobe stories series on rejecting the screen
2: there are so many stories about kobe's legendary workouts Seems like anyone who ever played with him or against him saw these maniacal workouts firsthand or at least heard about them. Earl Watson, who played 13 seasons in the NBA and was head coach of the Suns, understands what it takes to be great. And as Earl explained to us, nobody, absolutely nobody in the game had a work ethic like Kobe did.
3: Kobe was obsessive. He had an obsession to the game but most people were just addicted to the game and his obsession was 24 seven. Um, just the stories of the team USA when Kevin Durant and, you know, then was on the you know, the teams were trying to make the TV at a young, you know, LeBron and young D Wade and how they were just marvel at the way even during the summer, he would get to the gym for the Olympic team. He would get there at three, four in the morning and get his workout in and then practice, uh, Ronnie Price, my teammate in Utah, who I coached in Phoenix, told me when he played with the Lakers, Kobe had told him, you know, let's get a workout in tomorrow morning before practice at 6 a.m. He said, so they met at a local high school. He said that when they went into the gym, um, he walked in and realized there was no basketballs. And he looked around. He was, okay, so I'm assuming someone's going to bring a ball. So Kobe's there. He's ready to go. Kobe's like, let's go. He was like, if we don't have any basketballs. He said, uh, we're not doing offensive work. We're just doing defensive slides for two hours, like all defensive <laughs> drills. And that's what they did. And that's the obsession. Like his mind studied everything about the game. And he always searched for life clues, uh, visual content, uh, physical information, um, mental health and like you know the right nutrition angles to get so much advantage into his obsession to always deliver an amazing product when he touched the court and to be one of the greats to ever play
1: when current sports illustrated writer howard beck was with the la daily news he was covering kobe on a daily basis so we asked him if he had his own kobe is just different workout story
4: one of the times that, that he and I had kind of gotten our wires crossed with, with something I had written, I wanted to wait him out after practice one day. And he used to be able to do this. It wasn't, a, you know, teams weren't so overmanaged where it was just like media time is over. Everybody leave. I could, I could wait. And PR would basically just say, you want to spend all your time here? Fine. We're, we're, we're going and having lunch. And I, I, I waited him out one day. Um, and he just kept shooting and shooting. And maybe that was just to piss me off or, or to, to may, see if I would just give up and leave. <laughs> Um, but I waited a long time and then we had a a very tense talk and, uh, it it was still many weeks after that before he thawed. um, but that's more of a, uh, that's, that's not exactly the right story, I guess, but it is, I mean, it, 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 the dude worked his his tail off. I think when we talk about, you know, Kobe or anybody else being pathological, unless they're doing the, and Kobe did this once too. I think we were in Miami where he did one of those, you know, you, you, you're, you're back in the press room and somebody's pops their head and says, hey guys, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Kobe's back out on the court shooting and it's, you know, midnight and you're on deadline and whatever. Now you got to wander out and go look and see. I think that, I think that did happen once when we were in Miami, but uh, most of what guys do when they are obsessive about the game is, is so far removed from anything that we're going to witness, right? It's, it's what they're doing in the off season. It's what they're doing. Sometimes at five in the morning because, you know, if you're Kobe, you never actually sleep. But it's not, it's not stuff that we're going to witness firsthand for the most part.
2: But many did witness it firsthand. One of them was Lindsey Hunter, who played 17 years in the NBA, many of them as Kobe's opponent and one in the 2001-2002 season as his teammate. They won a title together. So as Lindsey told us, he had unique insight into these legendary workouts. <laughs>
5: Well, of course, playing with him, I, I, I witnessed it firsthand. You know, um, some of the things and how long and, and um, torturous that he would just go at it. But I, I think the best one is when I was actually when I was with the Bulls, um, at the end of my career, um, and and I was I would always get to the arenas early, you know, because I, I would try to beat traffic and all that stuff in Chicago, and the arena was was dark, and I would always walk through the back tunnel in Chicago. And I heard a ball bouncing. And this is like hours before the game, and so I'm I hear the ball bouncing, but I see the lights are, are off, and I'm like, "What? Who the heck is out there?" So I I walk around, and it's Kobe. All you know, you barely could. I mean, it was enough light to see a little bit, but it wasn't a lot of light, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was full sweat going at it, and I'm like, "Man, what are you doing?" <laughs> you know. And he was like, I'm, I'm getting ready for the game. And I was like, oh, snap. So I walked, I walked by and I go in the locker room and I tell Pete Myers, I was like, man, we're in trouble tonight. He was like, why? Why you say that? I said, man, Kobe out there in a full sweat, man. It's like four hours before the game. I said, this dude is going to murder us tonight. And sure enough, by like 20 in the first quarter. Like, but that's just, that's just man, his, his desire and drive was, was
6: crazy it was
1: crazy yeah it was crazy another one of his teammates Robert Sacre was also a close friend of Kobe's he shared with us this incredible little anecdote about working out with him
6: for the guys who worked out with him you have to be patient that's the thing I've heard when guys work out with him you will do the same shot for an hour consistently the same shot like jab shot Dad shot, you'll do that for an hour. Just that's it. Your mind where, like, you can't get distracted. You got to know, okay, I'm doing this for a reason because you will consistently work that one shot over and over and over again until until that hour is up. And then you will make a, another shot where he's just
2: doing the same
6: shot on the same place on the court over and over and over
2: again one final story about kobe's almost incomprehensible drive and work ethic didn't take place over a shooting drill or a defensive slides drill actually it wasn't on the court at all it was during the creation of the aptly titled mama mentality book that kobe put together with hall of fame photographer andy bernstein who you may recall from earlier was the photographer kobe admired from all of his childhood posters Bernstein and Bryant grew to become friends, and 20 years after they met, they co-wrote, or maybe more accurately, co-produced mama Mentality.
5: And Andy Bernstein's in the Hall of Fame. If you've seen any picture
2: in the NBA that you absolutely love, he took that picture. And this guy is a legend. And as Andy told us, Kobe approached this project with the same ferocity as he did during all of those lonely, intense workouts.
0: So when he retired and I, um, I was about to, well, I wanted to do this kind of coffee table book of like my favorite pictures of him. Um, that's not the book he wanted to do. He wanted to do a book with me, which was incredibly generous, but, um, he wanted to do a book that would let people behind the curtain, you know, and the way he broke that down was, um, what is the process that he goes through on a daily basis and, the craft of basketball. So the process being all of the um, mental and physical preparation that he has to do, how he takes care of his mind and body, how he recovers from injury, uh, how he deals with injury, you know, um, and then, uh, you know, all of his weight training, things like that. Um, And then craft has everything to do with basketball, you know, the actual craft of being this incredibly elite basketball player. Um, So, it got to the point where he was asking for photos of very, very specific things that would be a teaching tool, really, to young players, to coaches, parents, whoever, or even just the general public who just wanted to know, you know, really what greatness meant, (laughs) you know, what's behind it. And I would make prints for him of certain photos and give him a Sharpie, and he would circle things on the photo, like where his legs were. or Where his eyes were, or his elbow, or all kinds of stuff. And we left that in the book. We actually left his, Mm -hmm. you know, physical writing on the pictures in the book because, you know, it's coming right from him. I mean, it's not anyone describing him. It's not anybody, their opinion of him. It's him talking about him. (laughs) So that's what made the book incredibly personal and special because it was, him telling his story about what made him tick right Um, complimented and illustrated through my photos and uh, you know I'm incredibly I can't even use the word grateful doesn't even cover it but you know the fact that now the book after the tragedy of losing him is really a bridge it's an incredible vehicle for the fans out there to stay connected to him but it's in his own words you know, and, it's, it, and that's a beautiful thing for
1: me to see. Mamba Mentality is a gorgeous and fascinating book, but it's also a memento. Andy and Kobe fans will always have the book to remember him by, in a far less substantial way. That's what the next story is for the two of us, and for the Rejecting the Screen podcast. In January of last year, we interviewed Kobe's friend and former teammate Robert Sacre. We've already aired pieces from that interview throughout this podcast, and truth be told, we didn't like the audio quality of this pod. However, something remarkable happened that day. During the research we always do prior to interviews, we discovered Kobe would constantly test the manhood of his teammates. We asked Robert this, and he told us the remarkably revealing story you're about to hear regarding one particular day at practice. We posted this story on Twitter and tagged Kobe in the post. Well, he retweeted it, and the tweet and episode blew up. We were pumped about Kobe retweeting it, and we were pumped about the promotion. However,
2: a week later, Kobe passed away. This Sacre story ended up being one of the last things Kobe ever tweeted about. Somehow this podcast, and this story in particular, have left an indelible mark. Whenever someone goes to Kobe's Twitter account they have the chance to hear one of the last things Kobe heard and appreciated enough to retweet. Even to this day, people like or reply to this tweet constantly. It really is incredible. So here's Robert Sacre telling the story that must have given Kobe at least a chuckle just days before he died.
6: That's the manhood, I remember setting a mean screen on him. Not like, it wasn't a dirty screen, but I, I, I knew I hit him. I wanted to hit him hard, too. and. <laughs> And uh, I hit him, and he goes, all right, Chuck, that that's your last screen right there. And I was like, whatever, man. And so I went to go set the screen on him again, and he just, like, straight up, like, he got through the screen, but did it in a slick way. Like, you know you're a veteran when you get away with this, and no one really saw it. But he gave me, like, a little uppercut in my stomach, knocked the wind out of me. And, like, I still had to play, and, like, I couldn't bitch about it. What are you going to do, right? Just got to fight through it. And, uh, and I remember that was kind of his test to see if I was going to quit and stop. And he got through the ball screen and the play was going on. But that was his way to see how, like, how he tested
1: me. Kobe's self-confidence and intimidation tactics are legendary. Here's Earl Watson again, this time telling us about a memorable moment during one of the famed summer pickup games in the UCLA gym
3: it was when J Kid, paul pierce and kobe were preparing for team usa and um i don't know if paul was on that team but i know he paul was a gym rat but i know J Kid and kobe was for sure so we played pickup it was only two courts at that time because a lot of guys don't play year round and kobe specifically wanted a team full of nine nba players you know, four of the guys on his team. And I never understood why. I just thought he was so competitive. He didn't want to dominate the game without a challenge. So I'm on a team with Paul. I think uh, J.K. had his own team. And so we beat Kobe. And, you know, on, on the winner's court, and Kobe was walking off to the loser's court. And Paul Pierce, you know, trash talk is always, you always, is part of the beauty of basketball. It's nothing personal, it's just kind of... And, it's like the, the nuance of the game. And and Paul yelled to Kobe, like, to the loser's court. It was, like, kind of laughing. And Kobe kind of chuckled and turned around, and he said, every court I go to is the winner's court. Watch how everyone follow. So when he said that, he meant the entire student body and basketball fanatics who would just show up to the gym and crowd the courts just to see us hoop. And as he said that, the entire crowd just flooded to the last court. I was like, "Damn!" <laughs> like, like it was just a, it was a great Kobe moment. Like you know, it was just a great Kobe moment. He um, was always intense, passionate. Uh, he would challenge you mentally with his words and physicality, but he always did it just to
2: raise the level
3: intensity of the games.
2: Kobe's desire to win was evident in summer pickup games and even in the preseason. Mo Dekeel is now an NBA writer for Bleacher Report and a podcast host. Before that, he was a video coordinator for the Spurs and Clippers. But before that, he was actually a ball boy with the Lakers. He told us this fantastic Kobe story from during those ball boy days.
7: We are playing, uh, the the Lakers were playing, I forget who, in San Diego. And it, it's preseason, it's a pretty run-down arena. Um, but Kobe misses a shot at the end of the game, and he's upset because he thinks there should be a foul call. And I, before the game, and this is before Donaghy and the whole, you know, the, the, there's a, it's not allowed anymore, but, like, referees would have, you know, charities or whatever, and one referee had a Kobe jersey that he needed signed for his charity. And Kobe, he already worked it out with Kobe and his group. Kobe knew after the game somebody was going to give him this jersey to sign, and apparently that was going to be my job. So after the game, I go to the referee, I grab the jersey. Um, I go to Kobe, you know, and, and Kobe's pissed. He's pissed at the refs because they blew the, the – he feels like he should have gotten a foul call and gone to the line. And he, you know, he signs the jersey and he just says, in not the ni- nicest words, um, tell those guys that I understand it's free season for them now as well. I expect that call in the uh, in the regular season. I'm like, oh, boy. Um walk into the referee's locker room, I hand the jersey to the ref, you know, and I go like this comes with a message though, and like all three refs kind of perk up. And they and they look at me and I say it word for word. There were a few curse words in there and things like that. And and you know, one of the referees goes, "Tell Kobe he is not allowed to jerk it off 8 times and think we're going to give him the give him the foul call." Because he you knows that era where Kobe would just pump fake fifteen times, get a guy up in the air, and then go up with it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So now I'm walking back, and Kobe's doing media at that point. So I just kind of, you know, do some ball boy stuff for a second. Then then I, I keep looking to see when media is done with Kobe, and it seems like they're never going to go away. So I kind of just stand nearby, and and you know when they park, Kobe looks at me. I go like, they have a return message. And. I, and, and, and <laughs> and I tell him that and, and, and I forget what he kind of said but he just said no he's like tell them this has to be called so I, and he's adamant about it and I'm listen, I'm at this point 21, 22 years old like, I'm not going to say no run in the locker rooms, I tell that to the rest and the referee says no 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 just, just tell Kobe to forget about it just ask him what's he going to name his kid because it, it was just announced that his, his wife Vanessa was, was pregnant I believe it was their first child and I go running back to Kobe, and I tell him that, and he just kind of says, it's not going
4: to
1: be named after any of them." <laughs> Kobe may have been an intimidating presence to refs and teammates and certainly opponents, but these same people also revered him. And nothing exemplifies this better than this story from Earl Watson. We'll set the scene here. March 2016, NBA season is winding down. Watson's the head coach of the Suns. Devin Booker is his star rookie. Just like so many other young NBA stars, Booker's idol, Kobe Bryant. Booker hasn't had a chance to play against him yet, but that's about to change. Kobe decided to play the last game against the West Coast teams in their homes so he can play one more time in every arena before he retires. So let's let Earl take it from here. And so it's the night
3: before the game, and Devin Booker is texting me like at one in the morning. He's like, "I can't sleep, man. I'm just so excited. I'm so excited." I'm like, "Yo, get some sleep, man. It's a big game tomorrow. Uh, you know, I'm coaching Phoenix. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that far removed from reality. If I lose this game, I can get fired just for losing to the Lakers. That's how it
8: works. Phoenix <laughs> <laughs> I can get, guy, you get fired, right?" <laughs>
5: So, so like, dude, get some sleep.
3: I need you. Like I have you and like three G League players. We have to be where where to be ready to go. So he gets to sleep, he comes in to shoot around. Book is so excited and he was like, You think he's playing? I was like, Yeah, I think he's playing. He's like, Man, I'm so excited, man. I he was just like a nervous excitement. And um it was it was so funny. In front of our bitch, Devin catches it in the mid post. Kobe's defending him and Devin try to hit him with his own so, move, and Kobe so lovely, blocked man. it. Playing against Booker
5: tonight, I mean, he, he went straight to my move the first time he caught it.
4: He like, hey,
8: yeah,
5: you're going to beat me on my move, man. Like, you know. And it was like something like, you know,
3: what the hell you think you doing? That's my fucking move. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like low-key he low laughing, feeling disrespected at Devin. His face turned red. And I think it was the greatest moment in Devin Booker's life. Like. Even though he blocked it, you could just see it coming like the rocker fadeaway move. And he was like.
5: But I mean, it was, it was, it was great to see. It was absolutely great to see. Cause I remember I, you know, I used to, I did the same thing with NJ.
3: So after the game, I actually posted the video. Kobe um, has already, always had this amazing mutual respect for each other. After the game, when I hugged him and talked to him, it was like, you know, man, I love you like a big bro. You always been there. And I, I asked one favor. And he was like, "What is that?" I was like, "Let me send Devin Booker down to the to your locker room at the end of the game and get your number." So you, he needs you in his life to be successful. Like, there's only so much I can give him, right? But you can give him that 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 next level mentality, and it's coming for you is going to change his life. And I was like, "Yeah, sit him down." I was like, "Cool, man. I see you throughout the summer and off season, and like you know, literally, I send Devin down there, and um, a year to that date." Well, when he went down there, he signed Devin's shoes and it said, be legendary. And a year to that date, it was literally the next day in Boston before the game. It was a day later, a year and a day later. I went into Dev before the game. I was like, be legendary. Because what I knew was that he Dev always celebrated that moment. And that's the same game Devin had 70 in Boston.
1: Can't make incredible. that stuff up.
2: Long before Watson and Booker ever got to Phoenix, Sean Marion was a four-time All-Star with the Suns. He was a dominant wing on both sides of the floor. During the 2003-2004 campaign, Marion's Suns team had won just 29 games, and Mike D'Antoni had been brought in midway through the season. He was the perfect coach to turn things around, but the roster obviously needed some tweaking. That summer, they signed Steve Nash and Quentin Richardson. Over the next six seasons... They went on to win the Pacific Division three times, reached the Western Conference Finals three times, and Nash, well, he earned two MVP awards. Nash's deal, six years at $65 million, was obviously worth every penny. But an oft-forgotten fact, signing Nash meant the Suns essentially eliminated themselves from signing Kobe Bryant.
1: Kobe was 25, fresh off a Finals loss to the Pistons, and he was in the midst of that aforementioned ongoing quarrel with Shaq, and he was a free agent. So the timing was right for an up-and-coming team to make a move. The Suns were reportedly ready to give him a six-year deal worth more than $100 million, But he decided to re-sign with the Lakers on a deal worth $136 million over seven years. But what if the Suns hadn't signed Nash and Q Rich? Could they have really gotten Kobe to come to Phoenix? We asked Sean Marion that very question. You know what?
5: Um... It's possible. It's possible. But, I mean, like, you know, playing for the Lakers is like playing for the Cowboys, uh, of football. I'm saying that's, that's just what it is. And, and uh, you know, we just, that's the only level you really can compete them with to a certain degree. But, I mean, it's possible. I mean, listen, you know, I think, um, you know, it was some great pieces that we had there. And uh, I think he could have definitely added to that. And we could have done some magical things and stuff, you know. And uh, it just, it just unfortunately didn't happen.
1: Were you trying to recruit him?
5: Oh, yeah, I would always. <laughs> Why wouldn't who, 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 I? Yeah, would <laughs> no, of course. Like, he's a true competitor. Like, you know, I, I love playing against Kobe. You know, I think, uh, you know, that's that's one of the things I, I love. When he lifts him up, he came to play. He wouldn't know, uh, I'm taking the night off. No, he came to play. I love it.
2: Dante Jones also knew Kobe always came to play. Jones was a 13-year vet who wore eight different NBA uniforms. He reveled in playing against Bryant one of the league's most tenacious defensive players facing one of the elite offensive talents of all time. They had one of their famous battles late in the 2012-2013 season. With 10 seconds left to play, the Lakers were down two to the Hawks. Kobe rose to shoot on the baseline. Jones contested. There was some contact. Kobe landed awkwardly. Yeah, I think shot clanked off the rim. apparently that's what it is. we just in a bit. We got Indiana in a couple of days. Anybody... Paddle through it. It's this guy right here. But you're right, Stu. That was about as good a look as Kobe's ever gonna get. Wood
8: well, just does a great job of getting to the spot. And then Dante Jones like walked under him a little
2: bit. And that's why when he jumps
8: and comes down, he doesn't have the floor.
2: The Hawks won the game, but Kobe had a severely sprained ankle and a boatload of frustration. Kobe tweeted about the incident, saying, quote, 17 years, countless fades. This has happened twice. Jalen and now. Kobe was then quoted as saying, I can't get my mind past the fact that I have to wait a year to get revenge. So he asked Dante, what was the next conversation the two of you had?
5: Had nothing to do with that. And mind <laughs> you, that incident that incident actually hurt hurt my feelings more than anything because you understand, like Kobe's one of AI, Kobe, Michael Jordan. Um, those are the guys that I look up to. So every time I got an opportunity to compete against them, like I was always going over and above because when you're, when you look up to somebody, you're like, you're just trying to prove your worth. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yep. So you, you want, you want their stamp of approval. And so I've always, those matchups always taken them like super serious and always wanted to compete at a high level. Um, and then like, when he said that he Jalen rose me after the game, I was like, listen, number one, I was under a lot of stress before that game because I had just got traded from Dallas, didn't know their offensive – didn't know Atlanta's offensive schemes, um, wasn't really playing much in Dallas. So trying to work my way back in shape, and then you get – then you get, like, right before the game, oh, you're starting. Kobe's coming to town, and you're starting because Deshaun Stevenson doesn't play back-to-back. Oh, okay, so then now I'm trying to download a full offensive scheme and a full defensive scheme of how we're going to deal with – one of the best scores of all time okay so now i'm trying to figure this out and then he starts the game off like 0 for 10. he should i think he finishes he finishes the quarter at one for 11. so if i was going to hurt if you're really going to hurt somebody you start that off early because you just don't want to deal with 38 minutes of this guy
0: mm-hmm. yeah
5: so why would you why would you hurt them under the last second wouldn't you just knock him out early so you don't have to deal with him and they have to go to the next guy so I dealt with 38 minutes of a uh, 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 30 plus minutes of just battling with this guy who still, who kind of got hot in the third quarter when I wasn't when I was out of the game and then when I came in I guess he had a tough three pointer on me but now you guys had let him get back in the game I guess Kyle and him had let him get back in the game okay cool so now I have a tough another tough job when I had when I kept him at bay for most of the game and then we get to the fourth and it's an iso and I'm like okay this is what. This is what, as a kid, like, you you want nothing more than this. For game, you and Cove, you take pride in your D, he takes pride in his offense. And my whole my whole job was to just make sure he does not get a clean look, make sure you contest, make sure you get a hand in his face. That's all. So to pinpoint, I know you can slow motion and do a whole bunch of things at that point, but to pinpoint an opportunity where I never even felt him touch my foot, that's why I was super animate after the game because, like, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel him touch the back of my foot, placing my foot under him. Nah, maybe Jalen did it on purpose, but me, I had more respect for him and, and than, than anything in the world at that point in time. And when he said that, that kind of put a lot of pressure on me and my family because at that point in time, for like another, I was standing in a hotel because I just got traded. We had to have 24 hour security, death threats to my, to, to, to my family members on, on, on social media. Like, it just heightened a bunch of things that never was my intention.
1: A memorable Kobe moment. And we found it particularly interesting to hear it from the other side, but we included it in this podcast because what happened next gives some insight into the man Kobe became later in life. It started when I asked Dante if they ever talked it out.
5: There's no talking it out. I guess his emotions after the game, he may have thought something, but he let it go. It's nothing that we like. We talked about we saw each other because before he passed, I saw him. I saw his um, I saw him at a um A U tournament and with my kids and his kids, and he, he had a moment with my son. He was super engaging. Uh, my assistant coach was a huge Kobe fan. I introduced him, and he was super dope to all the people around him, and he spoke to me, asked me what I was going through, what was going on, and, and how I was doing, and then we, we just parted ways. Like, he was super dope um, the last time I saw him. So we never had a moment of any controversy or, or, or off-the-court involving that moment at all.
2: Dante hit on a theme that popped up over and over again for those we interviewed. Kobe was clearly a vicious competitor during his playing days and was narrowly focused on improving his game and, of course, on winning. And regarding his image, he was calculated. But once Kobe retired, it was all about family. Here's Earl Watson again.
3: Post-career, Kobe put his family in the forefront, his children in the forefront, Because as professional athletes, we sacrifice so much of that, that it kills your heart on the inside. And it would be like Michael Jordan doing our younger era, retiring from basketball, opening up a facility in Chicago that created programs for kids for training and, you know, um, leagues and tournaments. But Michael Jordan is coaching his son's teams there. Right. Like, think about that. Global, universal, mega superstar. Now the head coach and coaching or assisting his daughter's basketball teams, and you knew where to find him every weekend. That is unheard of. So seeing him around the kids, seeing him like in his element with with, with children, young women, just lifting the game of of women basketball, and going to UCLA games, women basketball games, and then seeing him in the front row with Gigi talking the game at the Lakers games. And the, the the funniest thing to me that was so beautifully unique is that he would take the pictures of Gigi with her favorite stars, not knowing that her favorite star's favorite star was her daddy.
1: That's crazy, yeah.
3: <laughs> it's like he was like angling it and getting all the angles and taking the pictures for a superstar who people question humility, right? Kobe displayed the highest purpose of humility and created it organically through his
1: dedication and just time to youth sports through his daughter. Kobe's former teammate, Adam Morrison, has also been coaching his daughter since he retired. And that connection was one of the many reasons why Adam was still extremely emotional when we spoke to him a few months after Kobe's death. You could hear it in his voice. But he told us a story we wanted to end this tribute with because after you dive into Kobe's driven childhood in the early days of his career when he was trying to figure out his own identity, Kobe had evolved. He became a model family man, a loving father, and someone who looked out for others. And this story Adam told us encapsulates that perfectly.
8: I was it was a year after I was out, and so I wasn't playing, obviously, and I was career was in the in the shit and my personal life wasn't great I was really depressed and I was basically a hermit in my own house and I was didn't go out in the community at all and then you know if you did it was one of people asking you why aren't you playing and I was you know I'm 26 at the time or whatever I was and you know number three pick and just really low point in my life and I get a text from Robert Laura the the Lakers security and was Kobe's like one of his best friends and he said hey what's your address uh, I got something in the mail for you and Robert and I had a relationship um, you know I was into rifles and so I would call Robert like what, what do we what do you think I should get and so we had a relationship besides just him and Kobe right yeah what I'm saying like I knew Robert on a little bit of a sure, different level sure and so I thought I was getting a package from Robert on you know something a magazine or whatever just something. And I get the package and it's, um, an autographed jersey from Didier Drogba, um, who is my favorite player. I'm a Chelsea fan. And, um, you know, it's from Kobe and game worn jersey, you know, signed Didier Drogba to Adam best wishes. And I always thought Kobe, um, you know, made a phone call, which is would be fine. It's still cool as shit. It's unbelievable. And, the night he passed, I'm scrolling through, reading everything, and I'm emotional. And on Chelsea's, um, you know, Instagram page, it's him with Didier Drogba holding up a jersey, and it says "To Adam, best wishes." So he went up to my favorite player, wow. got it signed without me even asking, and sent it to me when he knew I was was low. You know, and it's unbelievable. I still have the jersey, and uh, you know, it's. That's that's what Kobe Bryant was, man. He was just one of those dudes who understood his own aura and could sense when people were down. And he he had I'm not the only person that had that. Obviously, like he went to his, his, his funeral, and people were talking about just how he impacted their lives, like making phone calls for him or pulling him aside, knowing when they were down. He was that type of person. Um, and so, yeah, when he passed, it was it was difficult. I was I was I was fucked up for. You know, about a week, and like I said, it was a real reflection on my own life. I'm like, what am I doing right now? And if I'm doing everything I'm the way the mama mentality, and that's that's that shit's real. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I again, I'm just really thankful that I I was uh, to be able to be a part of his greatness and be around him, um, and that's just not bullshit. That's real. Like he had a real impact on me. Um, He helped me um, through some dark times, like I said, and he publicly defended me and and was just always cool to me. Um, And so I'm I'm just thankful for that. And I'm just incredibly sad that he's gone to to be frank.
1: It's heartbreaking to think back to a year ago, a moment we'll forever remember where we were, what we were doing, who told us that Kobe, Gigi, and seven others were killed?
5: You know, I, 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 I hope that tonight is not, you know, you guys know that You know, if you do the work, you work hard enough, dreams come true. You know that, we all know that. But hopefully what you get from tonight is the understanding that um, those times when you get up early and you work hard, those times when you stay up late and you work hard, those times when you don't feel like working. You're too tired. You don't want to push yourself, but you do it anyway. That is actually the dream.
1: For Adam Stanko, I'm Noah Kozlov. If you missed part one, make sure to go back and listen. It's all right here in the Rejecting the Screen feed. Thank you for spending your time listening to Kobe Stories on Rejecting the Screen. Rejecting the Screen, Kobe Stories is a Locked On
2: Podcast Network production. It was written and produced by me, Adam Stanko, and Noah Kozlov. Editing and sound engineering by Doug Branson. We'd also like to thank each of our guests on Rejecting the Screen for sharing their stories.
1: Adam, thanks, pal.
2: You are the best.